On today's crew call, we have with us Francis Lawrence, the director of The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, and the movie star, Tom Blythe, who plays young Coriolanus Snow. They're here to talk about the prequel to Lionsgate's $3 billion franchise, opening Friday, November 17th. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Francis Lawrence and Tom Blythe, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Francis, let's begin with when, how soon did the conversations begin with Suzanne about doing another Hunger Games? Like, is there going to be another book? Were they immediate or was it like, let's give her a little distance. Let's let her get into her zone. Uh, no, we honestly, we thought they were done. So in 2015, when, when we finished the Mockingjays, we, we kind of thought that was it. I mean, I think, you know, Nina and I especially sort of hoped maybe there'd be another book. But, you know, Suzanne said, look, I've been working on these books and movies for 10 years. Like, I'm, re I'm ready to go do a bunch of other stuff. I want to go write some plays, do something else. Um, so we kind of thought, all right, that's, uh, that's it. Let's go off and do other things. And then four years later or so, I think it was 2019, Suzanne came to us um, and called me and called Nina and said, hey, listen, I just want to let you guys know that I'm almost done with the book. So she didn't tell us that she was inspired. She didn't tell us that she was starting. She just told us that she was almost done with the book and that when it was through the next editor's pass that she would let us read the manuscript. So beginning of 2020, we got to read the, the manuscript for the book for the first time, but it came totally out of the blue. Did she tee you off to the fact that it was a prequel or did you learn it upon reading it? All she said, she didn't, she didn't want to lay out the whole story. So when she called me, she said, it's um, set 64 years before the first book and first movie, that there's one primary crossover character, which both Nina and I could sort of figure out who that was going to be. Um, and that there's a big music element to it. Uh, and that's kind of all she said. And everything else she wanted us to get when we, you know, just read the manuscript. So she sort of waited for, for the first read for us to, you know, get a sense of what the real story was and what it was about. So that musical element, that is what just wrapped me up and took me by storm. What an amazing element to bring into the Hunger Games franchise. And we always had, there was always the whistle, you know, from the first film. But that's a daring thing to do to add a serious musical element, uh, you know, to a, to an established franchise, you know, the CW, they're like, let's do our, let's do our superhero musical episode. But that's not what this was. This was something that was more authentic and more organic. Tell me about that, that the introduction of that and, and making that work. Well, you know, I mean, Suzanne, Suzanne had this idea, obviously, for the character of Lucy Gray and Lucy Gray being a performer and, you know, being, you know, primarily sort of situated in District 12, uh, which is, you know, you know, if you look at a map of America as that kind of West Virginia, Appala uh, Appalachia, you know, sort of zone. And the music that sort of inspired Suzanne was, you know, that sort of turn of the century into the 20s and 30s kind of country blue bluegrass, like folksy music, you know, that's sort of based on, you know, ballads, poems, songs, things that have been passed down through generations that have probably come from England, Scotland, Ireland. Um, and, you know, she had sort of a bunch of reference points. So she actually pointed me to this Ken Burns documentary on country music that was amazing. 
And I think it's maybe the second episode in sort of starts to cover this territory where you get into the Carter family and West Virginia and the sort of early, early, early recordings and these people that would go around and sort of collect these songs and started to record them. And that was kind of the the tone that we went for because it felt like authentic to the region um, and it felt like it has sort of real mythology and real history. And from there we went and we, we contacted Dave Cobb, this great Nashville producer, um, songwriter, and he had long conversations with Suzanne about her references, me about the sort of emotional feeling of the songs. And, you know, then he, he went and wrote the, you know, the chord progressions, the melodies, all of that. And then, you know, when we cast Rachel, she came in, she sang and she sort of found her voice in that, in that genre sort of perfectly and seamlessly. Um, and then was also able to sing live on set every day, which is, which is also great. So it became just, you know, not like singing to playback, not lip syncing, but it just became sort of organically part of the, the scenes and the sequences we were doing. Tom Blythe, you carry this film. There's no question. Rachel is excellent. She's fantastic in the film. But we've seen her before. We saw her in West Side Story. Let's start with Francis finding Tom. So, I mean, honestly, Tom came out of the blue. It was, it was um, you know, we saw a lot of people. We knew we were going to cast, you know, sort of fresh faces for for pretty much all the sort of like forward younger roles in this um and we saw a lot of people and a lot of talented people and i remember it was it was very late we'd seen many many people and i was on a train in germany on a scout and the train luckily had wi-fi and tom's audition came in and i had some time to kill and you know looked at it and i mean you could just instantly see he kind of blew everybody out of the water um his performance is amazing uh, in the audition, uh, also sort of physically, I sort of felt like, okay, I could see how there's some sort of physical similarities. You could kind of believe, uh, you know, that he could become somebody like uh, Donald Sutherland Snow, um, you know, with the great blue eyes too. And, um, but the other thing is, Tom, I'm not used to saying this in front of you, but um, yeah, I know you get, I know you get awkward when you have to compliment me in, in person. <laughs> <laughs> He has, uh, you know, an intelligence and a sophistication is like a sort of another connection um, because with, like without that just sort of inherent in the person playing, I don't think you'd believe that person could ever transform and get anywhere near um, Sutherland Snow. So he has that, but he's also just a great actor. You know, he's, he's Juilliard trained. He's amazing at his craft. He works really hard. Um, he really thinks about everything. And I knew he was going to be able to sort of hit all the kind of emotional values and sort of facets that we were going to need for this, for this character journey. Tom, what class are you in Juilliard? Class number? Uh, I was, God, what number was it? 49 was my class number. Yeah. I'm surprised you even know about that, that, that they have the numbers and stuff. I have a friend that went there back in the nineties. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So had you read the Hunger Games novels? I'm thinking you've seen the films. Tell me about the role coming to you, the the script coming to you. Yeah, I, I'd never read the uh, the original novels. Um, obviously, grew up watching the films when they came out. Uh, I think I was kind of in my mid-teens when they were when they were coming out, um, and was a huge fan of them. Um, and and Francis knows this. I was also a huge fan of, of some of his other films, uh, and like grew up on on those as well. Um, like I Am Legend was kind of one of those that I had on repeat uh, in my in my teenage time. 
um, and I've, I've gushed. Francis does know this. I've gushed to him in person um, multiple times. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, the, the Hunger Games, I was very, very familiar with. I used to go and see them every time they were released uh, with my family, um, but I hadn't read the books. So then when this came around and I kind of went through the audition process, which was a pretty kind of, for the most part, like traditional audition process, I submitted a tape and, uh, and then kind of forgot about it because uh, you have to to save your own, you know, mental stability um and then like a month later i guess it came back around somehow and, and, I, and i kind of got pulled into audition further um and then yeah at that, that point i kind of realized what it was because obviously at the beginning it was quite secretive um nobody knew that this was a hunger games prequel um and i kind of immediately got the book and started reading it so that i could get up to date um and was so thankful at this point that i had never read the previous books because a big part of playing Snow 64 years before is like an exercise in forgetfulness about where he's going to end up. Um, and I kind of had to not know all that information that happened 64 years down the line and all the years in between um, in order to be able to play him at 18 and kind of somewhat naive, somewhat uh, still hopeful, youthful, um, and not this kind of like cynical, soon to be, uh, you know, dystopian leader. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Because that, and, and that's what's amazing, is how does this guy even turn into that? Francis, sorry to bring this up, but one of the people that sometimes amuses me is Carl Rove and just how he was as a strategic genius. I'm a self-Democrat, but I'm always interested in the origins of how someone starts and then where they wind up. And he has a very interesting story. But bringing it back to Coriolanus here, what is it that makes him turn? I think there's a lot of things. I mean, part of what's interesting about the story is, you know, is the sort of nature nurture aspect, right? And I think part, you know, part of it is honestly genetic. I think part of it is he's his father's son and his father, you know, definitely had certain beliefs and philosophies. And there's elements of that in there. Maybe some of the sort of need for ambition and power, you know, that's in there too. But, you know, he's also been basically raised by this cousin who has this huge, big heart um, and who is, you know, a great, good, truly good person. Um, and so he has influences like that, too. Right. So he's he's this kind of unformed like person who's kind of on this, you know, the, the, the sort of fence of being able to sort of fall either way. And he's getting pushed and pulled throughout the story by people like his cousin Tigris to stay good or by Lucy Gray or by Sejanus to sort of go the kind of moral route. And then he's also being groomed by people like Viola's character, Dr. Gall, right? Who's sort of telling him like, look, here's the way the world works. The way the, way the world works is humans are savage and brutal by nature, right? And so he's got somebody like that in his ear too. And then he kind of gives himself over to, to you know, this, this romance and you know gets betrayed by really one of the only people in the world he he can trust and so i think what you have is like sort of all of these elements that sort of conspire to you know let him descend into darkness yeah i mean francis pretty much hit the nail on the head but if i had to add anything i i, I feel i would say 
the grooming part for me was a big part of it. I think the idea that he's been groomed by the Capitol and by the Academy and by Dr. Gall and all these game makers and people who he's kind of looked up to since a young age because they're the positions of power within the Capitol. Um, and he's taught from a young age by his father that kind of power and control is everything. Like if you have that, you're safe. Everything is good. Um, and then I think for me, that if, if there's a crux or like a moment where it changes is when he meets Lucy Gray and she challenges all of that because she represents freedom and and liberty and music and, and love and all these and hope and all these things. Um, and she kind of challenges his notions and he kind of starts to fall in love with her. Um, and then in letting his guard down, he lets chaos in. And in letting chaos in, he he kind of learns that, that the capital was right all along and that he, he's kind of right to be fearful of chaos and that he needs to control it. Uh, that's kind of how I looked at it. What was the biggest part of your process? Was it the actual novel and text? Were you just dissecting that with a highlighter? Or was it just getting into the costume? Yeah, I think for me, it's always like a marriage of the two. Uh, like, it all starts with the text. I'm like a, a script head. Like, if, if, if I get lost at all, which you obviously do all the time as an actor when you're playing a part, especially a part that's kind of this morally complex, um, I always go back to the text and like having the the book is kind of an absolute blessing because you've got like a character bible right there um in physical form um but yeah I think I think it's always a, a mix of the two it's like very text based work for me but I also find you know the minor transformational stuff kind of keeps me true and keeps me feeling like I'm in the shoes I mean literally the shoes uh I like one of the first things I do is I try and get my character's shoes um just so I can feel the way they walk in those particular shoes um uh yeah the costume obviously i had a wig i had a blonde wig for the for when he's younger um and spoiler alert end up getting shaved off later on um and all of those things i just think like alter your physicality as an actor and as a character um and then voice we francis and i spoke really early on about the voice which was we don't ever want to try and recreate donald's like very uh like imposing you know uh recognizable voice uh that he had in the franchise um and just has as an actor in general um but obviously going into it i was super tempted to do that i was like i think like very early on you wanted to listen to simply orange commercials <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. That, that was it and that's all i did basically that's there you go <laughs> uh no but it, I, it definitely was on my mind and, and francis gave me kind of the freedom very early on and said look he's 18 his voice hasn't even gotten there yet he's not been trained to be a president he's not you know there's, there's a certain thing that happens when you get older and when you get more successful and powerful that your voice changes and you become more calculated and, and specific and your cadence changes so we had that freedom but then at the end I did want to feather some in because I wanted this kind of physical transformation to happen uh, as he gets closer to becoming president snow by the end um, and as his kind of like more cynical self sets in and so i kind of feathered in a little bit more of that kind of slow more specific cadence towards the end francis and and tom can you talk about the tender moments in this you know you really yes hunger games a very action driven tick tock by the clock there's a lot of energy in you know throughout the franchise but there are some wonderful romantic scenes in this, like on the Ryan O'Neill, Ali McGraw level. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that. And it's it's very different from what we saw with Katniss in, in her movies. Tell me about that. What, creating that, the why of it all, 
is it so that we could see the tender side of this guy who we think is going to become the ultimate bad guy? I, I mean, for, for me, I mean, the, the, the romance was, was a very interesting aspect and it was a bit, it was a big part of sort of the draw of the story to me. And I think it was also sort of a complicated thing to tackle in the right way. Um, and I think that's partly what makes it interesting. Right. And because look, Lucy Gray and Snow are two very different people. Right. And I think that, I think that Snow has never probably actually had a girlfriend and he certainly hasn't met anybody like Lucy Gray. Um, even though he's charming and maybe other people flirt with him, I think that he's actually like quite naive on the, the romantic front in truth. Whereas I think Lucy Gray is not. Um, and so what you have is a relationship that sort of starts out of mutual need, right? Like he needs her to win so he can like win the prize and put food on the family table. She obviously needs him so she can win so she can live. Um, and I, I do think that there's an attraction, but I think what's fun is the sort of mystery of whether or not either one of them is all that truthful in this kind of romance, right? And I, I remember too, this, this idea of, Tom and I spoke about this too, of like when two people feel a kind of draw to one another as well, right? The sort of magnetic chemical draw to one another but deep down, like in your gut, you probably know that this is not the person for you. Like they're from a different world. They're like, you know, there's something kind of wrong, but at the same time, you sort of can't help but be drawn to the person. And I think those, all those aspects kind of just make the romance a little more mysterious, a little more hesitant, a little more mysterious and not earnest. And I think that was the thing that we were really aiming for was to keep some mystery and stay away from the kind of earnest romance. What was it for you, Tom? Like I think of that moment when you bring the food to her when she's caged. Yeah, I think it's funny because Rachel and I have had a, had a few questions about like whether we actually think they were in love or whether it's kind of uh, like a relationship of necessity. Um, and I think we've, we've kind of both agreed recently in, in like hindsight that like it doesn't really matter. They kind of there's there's like attraction there. There is need there from both of them. They both need each other. And and so like kind of like it sounds almost too corny to say, but like, what even is love? Do you know what I mean? It's like if two people need each other and they're attracted to each other, that could be love or it could just be those two things, you know? Um, and I think that that's kind of like how we ended up playing it because there's, there's also mystery. There's also danger. I think both of them are scared of each other as well. Um, and actually that, that, that uh, scene in, in the zoo when I come and bring her food, I think that's like a really good moment where you see that where, and, and I definitely felt it in, in the playing of it, that, that they are, they're scared of each other and also, being scared of each other is also attractive. It's also interesting. It's also like magnetic, right? It's like someone who you don't quite understand and yet you're, you're fascinated by because you're so different and, and yet you, you kind of like want to get to know them and get under the, under the skin of them and understand what makes them tick. Um, and I think it's that kind of like morbid fascination that drives them both forward as much as it is uh, love or a more romantic notion. But I think that's that's what's so cool about about these scripts, the Hunger Games scripts, is that they do live in that slightly more ambiguous, more human state. It's not just one thing. It's not just like a romance story. It's not just a relationship of love. It's like all these things that in between that live in the gray area and make it more complex. There will be a spoiler alert on this. From what I understand, the ending, whether Lucy dies or not, is open-ended in the book. 
And that's, it's a very fascinating ending. But Tom, as an actor, do you, does that get in your head? Is it, you need a definite, you don't need a definite or no, he doesn't even really know himself. No, I mean, kind of speaking to my last point as well, I, I don't think I ever need a definite really. And I know that sounds a bit like a cop-out, but I feel like I'm actually way more interested in not knowing. I'm way, like, not only because it leaves it open for potentially us making another film one day, which it would be great. Um, but like, aside from that, it's, it's like, it's just cool to think uh, as an actor that it lives in this more like, more like, uh, like unknown, you know, I just think the unknown is always like infinitely, infinitely more interesting than, than knowing solidly. Like I had, a, I had an acting teacher years ago who, who was like, why paint in primary colors when you can paint in the in the mixed colors you know uh, like why paint in blue or red when you can paint in purple um and, I've, and i think that's kind of like that it's like suzanne is like that moment is purple it's 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 not quite one thing it's not another thing um but but if i had to pick i think she probably survives and i think she's out there somewhere and i think it's knowing that she's out there that drives choreo to become like a fearful tyrant and and in his fear he, he uh, like grasps control as tightly as he possibly can. You know, I was going to ask Francis, Francis, do we know if there's another manuscript hanging around? But I know Lionsgate probably doesn't, and Suzanne probably, they don't even want any mention of sequels yet. Tom, what do you think his next step is? Coriolanus's next step in your assessment of the character. He's going to go to university. Yeah, I mean, he, we obviously see him head back to the capital and... Uh, I won't. I don't want to give too many big spoilers away. And uh, certain things unfold when he gets back to the capital. Uh, and I think like a very telling moment at the end of end of the movie and, and the book is is the moment where Tigris looks at him and says, "You you know you look more like your you look like your father." Um, and that is this moment where you go, "Oh, okay, he has transformed. He's changed." And it, and it really foreshadows what's to come. Um, and I think he is probably about to go to university and and like undergo a real kind of training to become that future president and and i think in the lore of the books he he becomes president really young um uh is that right francis he, I, I think he becomes president when he's very young right yeah it's pretty young and the other the other thing that happens in between at some point is and you know this is something that we sort of start with the story but he basically starts to poison his rivals so that's that's part of how he rises is that he poisons his rivals and in fact um, in the early movies, you can see when Donald Sutherland takes a sip of um, champagne, there's a little blood that comes from his mouth. And he actually, at some point, he poisons himself too to cover up the fact that he's been doing the poisoning. So he actually, he injures himself, which is why he wears the roses to cover up the smell of blood that's in yeah, his yeah. mouth from the leftover sores from the, the times when he actually poisoned himself while killing off his rivals. God, it is so dark. It's so, it's so dark. <laughs> Tom, Coriolanus's father, for the fans, tell us about how that legacy is in his head. He never really met dad. Um, he, he was very, very young uh, when he died, General Crassus Snow. Um, he... He, his dad dies in the districts during the war. He's, he's, uh, he's killed by rebels. Um, and I think that in itself, and he, and he was a powerful kind of leader in, in Pan Am. Um, and I think that in itself is like a massive driving force for the fact that he thinks all the districts are brutal. They're like chaotic places that need to be controlled. They are, um, they're, 
the people who live in them are other they're, they're like barbar- barbaric um uneducated and it, and it i think that has been cemented in him by the capital's teachings but also by just losing his father to the to the district um and i think what's really interesting is like suzanne is is definitely writing a story there about like the, the children of war and how they grow up hating the other you know and i and i think like if you really want to get deep in it like it, it, in war when there's retaliation right and like one state attacks another state or vice versa and it's like okay great but when does that end because that trauma gets passed down through generations and those children grow up to be young men who then have hatred in their hearts towards the other that they they deem responsible for their own trauma um and i think that like to me that's fascinating um and and like definitely was part of my kind of character study when i when i tried to endow him with like all the all the juice that then makes him turn towards the end Francis is the Constantine sequel. Is that is that bona fide? Is that happening? Uh, uh, we're working on it. I will say. So what what I will say is over the years. So Keanu and Akiva and I have always wanted to do it, and especially when we got when we got hit by this sort of R rating when it came out. Even though we followed all the PG thirteen rules, um, we decided we wanted to do it again, and but we wanted to do the hard R and so we've been wanting to do that for years and but over the years there's been many sort of obstacles into sort of getting some control over the character again because you know everything that's been gone on with the dc world and the the vertigo characters have been passed around to different people so i think nbc made a show about him for a while so they had the rights and then i think that jj had the characters and he was trying to do something and and then people take over DC and they have their plans. And we finally sort of wrangled some control. And just before the strike, um, Keanu and Akiva and I had been sitting down and, and starting to come, finally come up with the idea that we want to do. So we're definitely working on it, but we don't have a, a script or anything yet. Would it be at James Gunn and Peter Safran's DC or? I mean, it's at, it'd be at Warner Brothers and it would be through DC, but it's like, you know, our, our plan is that it sort of sits outside of whatever the master plan is, right? That we're going back to our Constantine, an older Constantine, a hard R version of a movie, but it's like our, our thing that's not married into, you know, whatever the rest of the, their master plan is. And is that what's next for you? No, not no. I, I I doubt it because we don't have a script yet. <laughs> I mean, we, okay. we have the, like the, the germs of an idea. And Tom, what's next for you? Um, I have a few fun things coming up. Uh, next is I'm going back up to Canada to finish the second season of a show called Billy the Kid on MGM Plus, where I play Billy the Kid uh, on horseback shooting guns. It's a lot of fun. Um, and we got shut down because of the strike, and so we've got four episodes of that left to film, uh, which will air at the early half of next year. Um, and then some really fun kind of uh, indie projects coming up next next year and hopefully a play. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. When does production start on Billy the Kid? We are resuming production on December 6th, so it's coming up pretty quick, like in a few weeks. We'll finish the press tour this week. Uh, I'll have a couple of weeks to try and catch up on some sleep and then and then get, get up to the very wintry colds of Alberta, Canada. Excellent, excellent. Francis Lawrence and Tom Blythe, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This was great. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Deadline's Crew Call Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.